Welcome to Illumination by Modern Campus. Through this series, we speak to higher education thought leaders about the trends, ideas, and opportunities that are shaping the future of this industry and pick their brains for best practices and advice that leaders can apply to their own institutions. On today's episode, Evolution Editor-in-Chief and Illumination host Amrit Alawalia is joined by Justin Lauder, the Associate Vice Provost for eLearning at Texas Tech University. The two discuss how to keep programming relevant while maintaining accreditation standards, and chat about the evolving role of online learning in serving modern learners. So Justin, uh, welcome to the Illumination Podcast, and thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. I'm, I look forward to talking with you today about um, kind of the state of continuing ed and, and post-pandemic online learning. Absolutely. And, and, you know, we are, it is an interesting time uh, to be in, in this space. Um, obviously, we've, we've seen some foundational shifts in the way that people think about and interact with uh, higher education and, and the way that continuing education within the institution operates. In fact, this year's report um, we found that 56% of respondents said that the role of their PCO unit grew through the pandemic. Um, and for context, only 7% of respondents said that they saw any kind of decline in the role that their, uh, that their division played. How does that track with what you're seeing in terms of the, the changing role of, of professional and continuing yeah. in online ed? So um, for, for my institution in particular, Texas Tech University, um, definitely agree with that 56% that the role of the PCO units um, have expanded dramatically over the, the course of the pandemic um, and has, you know, we have maintained a lot of that momentum um, now in our, I don't want to say post-pandemic world, but whatever we are in now. Um, the, the opportunity to work with more and more faculty and teachers um, and students has just been incredible. Um, and putting different courses, different programs, either online for credit, for academic credit, or for continuing education, non-academic credit, um, you know, we, we don't have a waiting list per se, but we have a lot of people wanting to work with us. And I think it's opened up um, folks' um, understanding of and their willingness to, to teach in a multimodal um, or online uh, delivery method. Um, you know, so I think, I think absolutely um, that agrees with, with, with what you're seeing. Um, and even speaking with colleagues, um, they have all seen um, not necessarily research in the PCO offices, but um, a greater emphasis placed on PCO offices over the last couple of years. It's interesting. You said, like, what what was behind some of the call it lack of excitement around exploring uh, online and, and hybrid modes of learning prior to the pandemic? Like, why were folks so hesitant? That's the word. Why were folks yeah. so hesitant to 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 explore that those those modalities? Yeah. I think um, you know, personally, my my opinion is that. Um, Many times we don't teach faculty how to teach online. Um, mm -hmm. You know, when they're going through a, a doctoral program or a terminal degree program, they are focused on their um, their curriculum, their their content, and so we we don't spend a whole lot of time in, in many doctoral programs on on how do you use some of these new technologies to teach. Um, so I think that was part of it. I think the other part was um, that there was this misconception that certain subjects can't be taught. Um, either hybrid or online. 
Um, and what we've learned through the pandemic and, and those of us in, in PCO uh, would say that, you know, almost anything can be done online utilizing tools through your LMS, through, through publishers, through other vendors um, to, to replicate a lot of what happens in a, in a face-to-face class. So I think it was the unknown um, surrounding what does online look like? Um, and I think what we also saw, unfortunately, um, and I hope we get to it later, is, is that so many people thought online was just let me sit in front of Zoom for three hours and lecture um, yeah. and just just talk to, to my students. And I think that um, is something that that is, a, is the next or, or is a new kind of hurdle we're going to have to overcome because there's that thought. You know what? I, I absolutely want to talk to you about that. Um, but before we get to it, uh, I'm curious about the process that you and your team put into place to the approach that you took to getting folks up to speed on, on how to teach online, uh, especially in some of those more complicated subject areas where maybe there wasn't a, a belief that it could be done. Yeah. So um, I have to say, I am I'm fortunate to have an incredible team of instructional designers um, at, at my institution, um, a, a team of, of, we have 12 dedicated instructional designers. Uh, we have uh, three individuals dedicated to LMS support, um, and we have two instructional designers that are uh, dedicated to accessibility, um, accessibility programs. So this, this, this great team of, of professionals um, to, to work with faculty. Um, we, like I'm sure many other schools, went through different iterations of, of training and getting ready for faculty uh, to support faculty. You know, in the beginning, that that first two weeks of, the, of this shift to emergency remote and, and things like that, it was um, what could we do in this short amount of time? And so we developed a, a plan and said, OK, if you do nothing else in your online class, you have to put your syllabus you have to have ways to assess your students. You have to have ways to interact with your students, you know, and you have to have ways to, to get this content across. If that's all you do, here are some things that we can work with you on. Uh, and so it was kind of what, what were the lowest, what was the lowest hanging fruit um, and how can we get that going? And then as it, as it progressed and, and moved forward, we realized this was, you know, a longer term pandemic and instead of what I think we thought originally um, yeah. we moved to um just-in-time trainings. So we would do, um, we started with doing hour-long trainings on things and we realized that is just too much for faculty. And so we cut it yeah. down to 30-minute to little things on this is how you use um, a testing tool or this is how you add your lecture into your LMS and these kind of things. Um, so we, we started recording all those and then um, we would do just-in-time training. So if a department said, hey, I've got 10 faculty you know, in, in chemistry or in biology that have never taught online before, can you do something just for us? And then we would say yes, and we would go there. So it, it really took on a, what do we need to do at that point to, to work with faculty and how do we grow? Um, that the, the staff were phenomenal working, you know, seven to seven, many days, um, working with faculty and, and answering questions on weekends. Um, you know, and I think th- that would echo what other PCO units have, have seen uh, or have done across the, the country and world is that the, the group of instructional designers and, and LMS support folks, they did what they had to do to support their faculty and students. And so it just kind of grew from there. 
we have now kind of coming in this point where we are, we have started a new program um, where we are doing intensive um, kind of two week trainings with faculty over the summer um, to help them get ready for, for the next semester. And so it's, it's a dedicated two weeks, them and one instructional designer sitting in front of a computer um, working on their coursework. And, and we, we had hoped to start with 10 faculty and we had 50 apply. And so wow. that's just telling me that there is this need for this ongoing training and support that faculty have gotten used to through, through the last couple of years. Well, you've kind of led me where I wanted to go because I'm curious about, you know, how folks' perspectives are now changing around integrating more online and hybrid uh, learning models in, into programming that used to be exclusively face-to-face, like especially that we're now that we're no longer in, in a in a position where the shift to remote or the offering programs in a remote fashion isn't a, a necessity or, or a mandate. Right. right. You know, I think one uh, great thing that we have seen happen um, is a lot of our classes that um, uh, were face-to-face, fully face-to-face before the pandemic, those faculty, a lot of those faculty have embraced hybrid teaching to where they have moved to doing um, more of the lecture through through the LMS, through a recorded lecture, through, through video vignettes, um, you know, 10, 15 bit little video vignettes uh, of stuff. And they are using class time for discussion and interaction with their students and and this activity-based learning. And so we've seen seen this shift away from um, not not large scale shift, but but pockets of shift from the the stage on the 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 stage on the stage yeah. uh, to to let's have this interactive you know learning experience um, put students in in groups. Um, and so uh, an interesting thing that's happened so we've had that and so now we've started to have conversations about how do we design the next classrooms at our institution to make sure they, they are conducive to group learning or, or discussion or interaction. And it's not, you know, the, the risers looking down on, on a professor. It's, you know, how do we make this more interactive? So I think that, is, that has been an incredible shift. And I, and I think that's going to be a, a more long-term shift for those programs that were not virtual or hybrid or online pre-pandemic, that they have embraced these ideas behind um, collaborative learning um, and interaction and, and discussion. Um, and so, you know, use that time to, to really work with your students. That's interesting. Is as we're talking about this, the thing that occurs to me is, you know, in the non-credit setting, this is all relatively straightforward. It, it makes a lot of sense. It's, it's really, but in, in a credit bearing environment, there's a lot more interconnectedness in terms of what needs to happen for the, you know, as foundationally, what, what we are talking about a little bit here is a, a significant shift in the program makeup and the program structure and design, which surely would lead to a curriculum change request. So how is your team supporting faculty when they do decide to in- integrate and implement more hybrid learning opportunities, more of a flipped classroom model to the way that they want to approach the course? How, how, are, how are they being supported through the curriculum change process to make sure that those changes are being reflected, that they're being reported to the, to the appropriate, uh, whether it's faculty senate or all the way to the accreditor's office? Like, how are those kinds of things happening? Yeah. 
So we have, um, and it's not part of the e-learning division, it's, it's part of the, but it is part of the office of the provost. We have an incredible teaching and learning center, um, teaching, learning, professional development center that, that is led by, by a, a great team um, that, um, so what we have kind of done is we've taken on discussions with faculty on the use of technology um, and how to integrate that into classes and things, uh, educational tech into classes. And the, the Teaching and Learning Center has, has taken um, on the talk about pedagogy and how you're teaching this. So we have built this really strong relationship between the e-learning division and the, the uh, Teaching and Learning Office um, to help grow with that. And we're seeing that utilized both in credit and non-credit offerings. And so, you know, we have folks that have decided to take some of their four credit classes and like, you know what, this could be a professional development certificate. This could be something oh. that we open up. And so, so now we're seeing kind of this work that we've, we've been doing teaching and learning center in our office to, to update pedagogy and instruction um, also kind of go over into, into the, the continuing ed or professional ed. So between this partnership, you know, that's how we're handling like course changes and modality changes in that. Um, and then at the university level, we have um, uh, a fairly robust process on program approvals. And so when, when departments say, you know what, we wanna make this hybrid, um, they have to go through a process where they, they talk with their deans and their colleges, and then it routes its way through all the appropriate, you know, bodies and, and approvals um, on campus to make sure that we're doing everything we need need to do. Um, all of our online programs and, and that follow what's known as the principles of good practice for online learning and, and things like that and, and um, guides. Um, so we have this, this robust process to go through the approval process, but we also, as part of that, because we have such great partnerships between this office and this division and other areas that we make sure that everybody is included on these discussions. And so it makes it a very robust kind of discussion on, on program changes on, okay, have you thought about X? Have you thought about Y? You know, um, let's, let's connect you with, with the teaching and learning center on how to, you know, think through lecturing um, and, and, and active learning and things like that. That's really interesting. And, and, you know, as by extension, how are you and your team working around um, maintaining levels of student engagement when, like, on campus we have hundreds of years of experience? How effective that is is neither here nor there, but that's a different conversation. But we we have significant experience in in generating student engagement and in, in maintaining, uh, you know, in in supporting their persistence and supporting their their. Um, their, their, their future direction. Um, whereas online, it almost seems to be up to the student to decide to, to drive their own persistence forward. So, you know, which was fine when the online student was generally a non-traditional student who was highly motivated and, you know, had the outcomes in mind. And now that the persona of the online learner is starting to shift, how are engagement pra practices keeping up? So it's it's actually funny. My my doctoral dissertation dealt with um, student autonomy um, in online classes, um, but also so where the student wanted to be more autonomous and taking control of their their learning, but they wanted strong faculty support when they needed it. So they wanted to be able to kind of 
take ownership of what they're going on, but they they want to they want that strong faculty member there. Um, so it's it's kind of funny to see the the shift uh, and what has happened over the the course of the pandemic. Um, you know, there's a couple of things that um, we do both with our credit and non-credit classes, depending on what what they're offering. But we talk about a lot. Um, we don't want to leave our students stranded in the ocean and just floating along there on their right. own. Um, you need to, at a minimum, find opportunities to engage with that student. And we, we tell faculty, if, if the student is the only one communicating with you um, and it's, it's one-way communication, that's, that's correspondence-based learning and things like that. And a lot of those, those types of, of programs, there's a lot of financial aid that don't you know, you can't use for correspondence-based education. So we have have to have that compliance conversation um, with them, but also it opens up the ability to say, but you know what, Where, what are some ways that you can interact with a student? Um, can you integrate something from Zoom? Can you do a, a weekly Zoom or office hours? Or how do you leverage discussion boards and, and this? And so it's it's kind of thinking through that I'll say it's also changed some faculty members on how they think about their in-class courses as well. Cause you have that conversation on how do you engage with your student in the classroom? Okay, so if you do it this way, this is how we can do it online through the LMS through, through um, we're a Blackboard school. So Blackboard or Collaborate or Zoom or, or things like that. Um, leveraging tools, um, we have a, a partnership with a, a tool um, called Feedback Fruits, which allows for some, some really interactive um, uh, instruction going on in the class. And so kind of leveraging tools like that to tell faculty, okay, if this is how you did it face-to-face, this is how you can do it online, um, because you don't want the student kind of floating out there uh, on their own. Um, and we've also um, tried to, to instill in faculty that in an online class, when a student emails, if it's at 2 a.m., that doesn't mean you have to respond at, at 2 a.m. Right. Tell your students that, you know, you're going to respond within 48 hours or whatever it is. Give students that timeline um, because it helps with the anxiety factor. And, and what we know from, from research um, and, and just conversations with students is that anxiety factor um, is one, one of the hurdles that you have to get through in an online class because you don't see that faculty member every day. You, you're not sitting next to peers. And so that if, that if you can't, if the student can't get answers to questions and things like that, their anxiety gets higher, you know, and if they shut down an online class and miss a week or two weeks, they may never catch up. So, so find ways to do that interaction and that conversation with students so you, so you lower that anxiety factor. Uh, and you have that this supportive environment. That makes yeah. I mean, that makes a ton of sense. And and what's interesting is that you're you're integrating sort of in class and out of class engagement tactics in a way that that are gonna yeah. I I love and I love the fact that it's it's getting folks to think a little bit differently about their more traditional offerings as well. Because at the end of the day, engagement is engagement and good engagement is good engagement. And it brings us back to the topic that I I don't think either of us necessarily want to spend too much time on, but it's it's important to cover because we've had, I call it a generation of learners now, engage with some pretty awful online learning. I mean, we had two, two and a half years of, you know, those of us in the, in the know, we'll call it remote education. 
right? We call it remote learning. It wasn't online education. It wasn't facilitating peer-to-peer -peer interaction. It wasn't even really facilitating peer-to-educator interaction. There are so many reasons that those of us who understand the space can recognize that not to be online learning. But if you ask any of the students who did it, whether they're in kindergarten or grade three or grade 12 or, or in their you know, second year of a degree program, they'd say they did online learning for two years and it was horrible. How, how concerned are you that learners are gonna hold on to that experience as being the experience with online education as they continue to, to, to age? So I, I think um, I, have, I have two concerns um, with it. And, and one is the perception that um, quality online instruction is the same as emergency remote teaching, yeah. um, which, which, is, which is the you know, conversation that we've all been having. Well, no. It, you know, and it's, it's not a fault to the faculty members, not a fault to, to the, the K-12 schools. It's, you know, you did what you had to do in this time, you know, and, and how many universities and how, or, or K-12 schools really were set up to make that pivot to quality online learning, you know, if, if you know, that, so that was tough. And so, you know, you got what you got um, and they were doing the best they can. And so I applaud, you know, teachers and, and faculty for, for doing what they could, but you're exactly right. There is the perception that emergency the remote is the same as quality online. And so we have to, if, if you think about the last 10 years in online learning, um, we have PCO units have gone from really out in the fringes of the universities to being core to mission because yes. we went from being, oh, that's, that's not quality learning. Um, and now we've moved to, oh, this is, you know, this, this is just the same as, as face-to-face -face done well. And so we, we had moved to that, that point and then now we've had the pandemic. And so I think we've taken steps backwards. And so we have to almost have some of those same conversations uh, to say, you know, this is quality online learning um, is very similar to face what happens in a face-to-face -face classroom. And that is not sitting in front of Zoom for three hours and just lecturing for, for students. Um, but I think the other concern I have with this is not that people are, are thinking about online learning as emergency remote and, and, have, and have thought about left. It's the idea that of academic delay. Um, we now have two years of students that may have gone through um, some not, not very high quality online instruction. They may have gone through this, this remote instruction that was not done very well. And now we have no idea what academic delay they may have, um, you know, and, and now we're looking at a generation of kids, K-12, uh, K or P-16, whatever you want to say, that um, we may have to come up with additional remediation opportunities at the higher ed level. Um, K-12 schools may need to find new ways to do tutoring because we don't know what the students may have lost in those two years, not just because of the instruction, but just because of, of those two years. So I think yeah. Um, it's, it's, there, there are two very, um, very strong, uh, or very, very large, um, problems that we have to think through. It's, it's the, uh, perception that emergency remote is the same as quality, but it's also the, the learning loss that we have to deal with. And so I think that is where those of us in, in PCO units and, and, um, universities in, in general, we, we've got to come together to think about what are those support services and what are those things we need to do with students to make sure 
that they make up for whatever that may have lost and, and get back to and exceed where, where they may be going. So I think it, it's, it's both things, but you, you know, you're right. You don't spend a whole lot of time talking about emergency remote because, you know, um, we spent three years trying to say that's not the same as online. And so now we need to say, this is how we're moving forward. Yeah. And, and I mean, to that point, you know, this is, it's an interesting proposition, right? Because it's, it's how is PCO helping to guide the strategy and the direction of, of the institution? And that's never really been on the table at most institutions in the past. It, it's really a new development as we see, you know, again, from, from the state of continuing ed, from any conversation you have really with any continuing ed leader, uh, the fact of the matter is that these divisions are, are playing larger and larger roles. So to your mind, you know, how can PCO leaders really build off the momentum of, of the past few years to continue contributing to the strategy and the direction of, of the wider institution? What's, what's the playbook? Yeah, I think, um... Uh, so for, for us in particular, I think what it is, is making sure you have, you have that seat at the table with, with the larger leadership and make the case that no, everything doesn't have to go online, but here is how we can leverage the PCO units to support students, um, no matter what the modality of course might be. Um, and I think that is, that is the key to, to building the momentum. It's not, oh, let's make everything an online degree and let's grow this. It's how can we leverage the educational technology um, and the pedagogical tools that we have added to the campus over the last couple of years to help the students no matter where they are. Um, like many schools, you know, we, we had a, we now have a campus-wide license for Zoom because we were using it so much. And so now how do you leverage things like that in, in different classes? How do you leverage tools um, face-to-face? And so I think that conversation, and that's how the momentum continues. It's how can we help meet the um, instructional mission of the university um, no matter where the student might be learning, um, no matter where if they're in the dorm room in a lecture hall 500 miles away, how can we leverage what we've learned um, to, to support that? And I think that's what keeps PCO units as part of the momentum um, and the, the change discussion happening at, at our institutions today. Absolutely. Well, Justin, before I let you go, um, you know, one of the questions that I'm starting to ask folks is, as we get to the, the end of these episodes, obviously folks are, are traveling around a lot more. Folks are starting to you know, head to conferences. If someone finds themselves in Lubbock, what's a restaurant that they need to go to? Um, so there is, I, I call it a hole in the wall. Um, there is this, this Thai place that is downtown that, um, is, I know it's not West Texan, but, um, it, it used to be car- <laughs> not what I was uh, expecting. <laughs> yeah, see, um, it, it used to be a car dealership and, and they've turned it into this great little hole in the wall Thai place. So, so I always send people there, but if you want something traditional West Texas, um, or something, you know, meat and potatoes. Um, there is a, a great restaurant um, downtown near the Buddy Holly Center. Actually, Buddy Holly was from Lubbock. Um, Buddy Holly Center called um, Triple J Chop House, and they do um, some some great West Texas food. Um, and it's a it's a brewery. They do their own beer and things like that as well. So um, that's always a great local place to check out. And then when you're done, you can wander around and see. Um, Buddy Holly Hall and and all of that and kind of learn where Buddy Holly came from. So that's a that's a that's a great place too. There you go. Okay. Well, so if you're going to Lubbock, try to be there for two days. And <laughs> hey, well, Justin, I I so appreciate your time. Thanks so much for joining us. You bet. Thank you very much. I'm happy to help. 
This episode is brought to you by Modern Campus in partnership with The Evolution. Modern Campus empowers higher ed institutions to thrive when radical change is required to deal with lower student enrollments and revenue, rising costs, crushing student debt, and even school closures. Powered by the industry's only student-first modern learner engagement platform, Modern Campus supports every corner of the modern institution, from continuing and workforce education, to student affairs, to the registrar's office, to marketing and IT. To find out more on how you can transform your institution to meet the needs of the modern learner, visit moderncampus.com. That's moderncampus.com.